0: Surprise. (laughs) He says such nice things, doesn't he? Hello, everyone. Well, it's Mother's Day, and I sort of feel, you know, a little bit out of place talking about something rather different. But I have a mother who's almost 90 years of age. One more month, she'll be 90. And I treasure her. And even though she became a widow when I was 10 years old, and I had three younger brothers, she filled the bill. She raised all four of us, and all four of us have learned to love the Lord. So greetings, all you mothers. You're cherished. Grandmothers, too. I've often wondered what was going through my mother's mind, 1962 when she stood on the dock at a harbor and looked up at Carol and me and I was holding her firstborn grandson, little Stephen, in my arms, four months old. We were on a ship to sail across the Pacific to Australia and from there go north up to the big island of New Guinea, the island of a thousand tribes speaking a thousand languages. And some of those tribes were still practicing headhunting and others practiced cannibalism. And there were a few that practiced cannibalism and headhunting. And I didn't say too much about the details because I knew it was just hard enough for my mother to say goodbye to the three of us. Little did she know, three months after we saw her vanishing in the distance looking over the railing of the ship, we were in a dugout canoe instead of an ocean liner, arriving in the midst of one of New Guinea's thousand tribes, a tribe known as the Sawi, a tribe noted for both cannibalism and head nutting. And they welcomed us by dancing around us almost nonstop for three days and three nights. They had heard positive reports about tall, pale, sickly-looking beings called Tuans, And, oh, they wanted to welcome a Tuan and... That's what I happened to be, and so what a welcome we got. And I had to learn their language without the help of a published grammar or dictionary, without a bilingual language instructor even. All I could do to learn the Sawi language was stand among the people and start pointing at things, hoping they would understand. I wanted them to give me a Sawi word for whatever I pointed at. Well, I began by pointing at a man. They looked at me curiously. And then one of them said, Didig, eagerly I wrote down, Didig means man, my first sawy word. But then I pointed at a woman, and again they said, (laughs) Didig. I thought, perhaps it means person without regard to gender, cross out man, right person. Then I pointed at a dog, and they said, (laughs) Didig, must mean living thing. I pointed at a house, a tree, a canoe, a paddle, the river. No matter what I pointed at, they kept saying, didig, 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 didig. By then I was saying, Lord, have you led me to a language with only one word? (laughs) Finally, I realized what didig meant, finger. (laughs) It is not their body language to point with one finger unless you're placing a curse upon someone or something. Thank God they were giving me the benefit of the doubt that I wasn't placing curses upon them. If they'd drawn that conclusion, I wouldn't be here to tell you about it. And they were probably muttering, "This two-on is so dense. He keeps holding up his finger. We keep telling the word. He just keeps asking us to repeat it. <laughs> Do we have to stand here all day saying nothing but finger, 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 finger?" Where <laughs> they were probably asking, "Are all Tuan's as dumb as this one, or did we get the worst of the lot?" Later I found I had to learn to point with my lips. (laughs) In our culture, you know what that's asking for. (laughs) And this was the merest beginning of our cross-cultural communication difficulty among the Sa'wi. Months later, having learned the language well enough, I began to proclaim the gospel message narrating the story of Jesus and one day I narrated for a group of Savi men the story of how one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, turned against his friend and master and betrayed him with a kiss to be led away and slain by his worst enemies. To my shock, they all started cheering for Judas, (laughs) saying, we never thought of kissing our victims at the moment of truth. He's done us one better. They said, that man, Judas, is the sort of man we call a tare duan, a master of treachery. Someone else chimed in, tell us more about Judas, Don. He's the sort of man any one of us would be proud to promise a daughter to in marriage. <laughs> that was not the response I was hoping for. <laughs> and I was feeling so envious of John the Baptist, saying, John, you had it so easy. Point to Jesus, standing right there, saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... No doubt everyone present turned and looked at Jesus and said, Ooh, but these sawy people have never seen a sheep, never heard of a lamb. They do have pigs, but I can hardly say, Behold the pig of God. That would (laughs) not be an appropriate metaphor. But there was another metaphor, which I was to discover. And the adventures that Carol and I began to have, going there with our firstborn son, Stephen, and raising three more children, along with Stephen, among the Sawi people, led eventually to the writing of the book Peace Child. And around that time, so many Sawi we were Christians, and they wanted to cooperate to help me tell their story to the whole world, not that they knew how big the world was. They thought it might be 100 miles in diameter. But they cooperated in producing a video called Peace Child. Then six years into our ministry in the Big Island of New Guinea, north of Australia, a terrible tragedy struck. A hundred miles to the north of where we were seeing a wild jungle transformed into a sort of Garden of Eden as hunters gave up headhunting and cannibalism and became worshippers of God, citizens of God's kingdom. Another tribe, one of the mountain tribes, the Yali, killed two of my dear friends, two servants of Christ, riddled with arrows, an eyewitness later told me, as thick as reeds in a swamp. And that that drew me into researching the background of why they were martyred and the story of what happened after the martyrdom. And that led me to, deeper into the ministry of writing, Lords of the Earth. And as I began to, gain more and more examples of things that God has placed in human cultures around the world that serve as eye-openers. And as they become eye-openers, they become heart-openers for redemptive truth, things that are parallel to some aspect of God's redemptive provision for mankind through the death and resurrection of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I soon had collected 27 case studies of these things I sometimes call them redemptive analogies. Other times I use the phrase cultural compasses. That God has designed and placed in the cultures of mankind to serve as pointers to Jesus Christ, the true north of the universe. And that led to the ministry of writing eternity in our hearts. But as we worked there in the jungles of New Guinea, researching the cultures of those tribes, more and more Muslims were coming from other islands to the west in Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim nation, and soon I found myself meeting Muslims more and more frequently. So I was drawn into the study of Islam and specifically the study of the Quran. and of course I was hoping in my research in the Quran, the founding book of Islam, to discover redemptive analogies, something in the things that Muhammad dictated to scribes back in the 600s that I could use as eye-openers to help Muslims see their need of Jesus Christ. But I became aware that it wasn't that easy to apply the principle of approaching a human being created in the image of God through a redemptive analogy when it comes to Islam because something happened when Muhammad was dictating information describes that later was compiled to become the Quran. This was happening in the early 600s. The only way I can describe what i found is to use a modern analogy. How many of you have ever had a problem with a virus in your computer? That can cause real problems in your software, right? And, and there are some people who maliciously will, will put viruses on the Internet so that they go all over the world and, and are a real inconvenience to people, and sometimes perhaps more than an inconvenience, they cause loss, confusion, and really, they really mess things up. Well, Muhammad, the one that Muslims call the prophet, Knew something about the Old Testament, and he knew certain things about, especially the Gospels, not the entire New Testament. And he, in effect, was seeking to download information from the Old Testament into the Quran and from the Gospels into the Quran. But in the process of downloading, a spiritual equivalent of a virus got into the software and a virus causes some very confusing phenomena, and that's what you find when you, as a Christian, read the Quran. Let me give you some examples of the effect of the spiritual equivalent of a virus. As you start reading the Quran, you get into chapter 2, which is 286 verses long, and don't expect to find a storyline. It's not like the Gospel of John where one story is told from beginning to end. Everything is pretty much mixed up. The subject constantly changes, but you find certain things keep recurring, and one of Muhammad's favorite pulpit pieces must have been the story of the Exodus. So in effect, he was downloading the story of the Exodus, Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh, and the Exodus from Egypt, the passage through the Red Sea, And he wanted to include that story in his Quran. In fact, I found the Exodus story being told so many times. I said, there's a lot of repetition here. I'm going to count the repetitions. So I began to count. And as far as I know, I'm the first researcher to do this counting of things in the Quran. And I'm glad I decided to do it because it became a very important research tool. Muhammad tells the story of the Exodus 27 times in just the first 89 chapters of the Quran. Well, that's an evidence he really liked that story. But in the process of downloading it from the Old Testament, the virus got into the works and caused him to omit the story of the Passover in all 27 tellings of the Exodus story. Not one mention of the Passover. Now that's a very major omission. The virus deleted anything that had to do with the atonement. And later, when he downloaded from the Gospels some things about the story of Jesus, just as he denied the Passover in the Exodus story, he refused to acknowledge the death of Jesus Atoning for the sin of the world, he said Jesus didn't die. And if there was no death, there was no resurrection. If there was no death, there was no need of an atonement for the sin of the world. Not only did he fail to include the story of the Passover in his account of the Exodus, but he borrowed things from other Old Testament stories and mixed them into the Exodus story where they did not belong. In four of the renditions of the Exodus story in the Quran, Muhammad has Haman from the book of Esther collaborating with Pharaoh in the days of Moses in Egypt to build a tower of bricks up to heaven. So there are three distinctly different Old Testament stories that got jumbled together. Not only that, and I'm just telling you the facts, this is what is really there. He also had heard some Jewish fables, Jewish legends, bedtime stories that Jewish parents told to their children to get their eyes get really big at bedtime, and he thought that some of those stories were scripture, and he mixed them into his download from the Old Testament. There was a Jewish fable that said, when God was giving the law to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, The children of Israel at first were not sure they wanted to promise to obey all these commandments. And so, seeing their reticence, God lifted Mount Sinai right up off the earth and held the great mass of this huge mountain in the sky right above the heads of the children of Israel. They looked up and saw the entire sky blackened with the mass of Mount Sinai. And they said, he's going to drop the mountain on us we don't promise to obey. Hey, hey, we, we obey. We promise to obey. And then God was satisfied, and he sent Mount Sinai back down where it belonged. That is in four of the renditions of the Exodus story. So the virus was causing considerable confusion. And Muhammad had heard something of the story of Gideon and included that in the Quran, except that he forgot to make Gideon the one who called for a selection of a smaller number of warriors out of a larger mass of them, according to how they drank water or didn't drink water. Muhammad gave the credit to King Saul for the victory that Gideon won. And then, as I was reading through the Quran, I noticed... In chapter 2, for example, one out of every seven or eight verses threatens people with hellfire. And so I thought, he's really majoring on his hell theme in chapter 2. I can hardly wait to get into chapter 3 to see what other strings he has on his harp. But chapter 3, it's the same thing. Chapter 4, the same thing. So just as I counted all the Renditions of the Exodus story, I decided also to count the hell threats that Muhammad dictated into the Quran. I keep saying dictated because he couldn't write. He was illiterate. He relied upon scribes to listen to what he claimed. God was speaking through him, and the scribes wrote things down on pieces of parchment, on, on camels, shoulder blades, whatever they had to write on. So, I counted the hell threats. Now, there are approximately 6,200 verses in the 114 chapters of the Quran, depending on which particular translation you use, some of them vary a little in the numbering of the verses. Among the 6,200 verses of the Quran, men and women, I counted 783 verses that threatened people with hellfire. Obviously, Muhammad saw the potential to exploit the biblical doctrine of hell, teaching about the judgment of God, as a means of mind control, as an instrument for intimidating people and browbeating them into submission to himself. Because again and again, the reason people end up in the flame, as he keeps saying, become inmates of the flame, it's because they refuse to believe in God more and more as you read on. It's because they refuse to acknowledge him as a prophet. It's because they do not believe that the Quran is inspired by God. And so I thought, now, one out of every seven verses threatens people with hellfire. Hmm. I want to compare that with the New Testament. So I went through the New Testament counting all the verses which warn people that there is a judge of the universe who will call men and women to account for the evil that they've done, for the sins that are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I counted one out of 120 verses among the 7,992 verses of the New Testament that warn of God's judgment. Compare one out of 120 verses in the New Testament with one out of Actually eight verses, seven point nine, let's say eight verses in the Quran. Now we need to understand as you and I befriend Muslims, and there are more and more of them in our communities that we need to take note of, be aware of, reach out to and love. We need to understand that if they do read the Quran, and many Muslims don't, they are afraid of hell. The fear of hell is one of the things that Muhammad put all through the the chapters of the Quran to cause people, once they committed themselves to him, to never want to forsake Islam. And the verses that describe the torment of people in hell become more and more lurid the further you read. Eventually he describes people in hell screaming in anguish, as the flame completely singes every bit of skin from their body. And when all the skin is seared away in the flame, then God renews all the skin again, and it's seared away again. And this happens. I mean, this could give people nightmares. So it's a book filled with foreboding, unlike the New Testament, which emphasizes the good news of the gospel emphasizes forgiveness, emphasizes mercy. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Muhammad was offering himself as a prophet superior to Jesus Christ and threatening people with hellfire ever so repetitively. And so we need to pray as we seek to reach out to Muslims that God will set them free from that fear of offending God just by disbelieving in Muhammad. There are so many things that Muhammad said that show him a self-discrediting prophet. The Quran is a self-discrediting book. But we need to know what are the things in the Quran that are off track, that are the results of a virus, a spiritual equivalent of a virus interfering with the truth that God originally gave to mankind in the Old Testament, so not only are so many Old Testament stories mistold, not only does the Quran wield the threat of hell like a, a massive club, but there's something else as well that gets repeated, and that are the war verses Muhammad when he came to Medina, a city north of his birthplace in Mecca, found that about 40% of the population of the city of Medina were Jews. There had been very few Jews in his hometown, Mecca, 200 miles to the south, but everywhere he went, he was meeting Jews in Medina. And the Jews in Medina were quite literate, quite well-instructed, about the Old Testament scriptures. Apparently there were not very many Christians there, and any Christians who were there tended to be very nominal and not very good witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Muhammad wanted to receive an acknowledgement from the Jews in Medina. Here's why. Pagan Arabs, to whom he was presenting himself as a prophet, said to him on some occasions, You say that you're a prophet sent to us by the same God who sent prophets like Elijah and Moses to the Jews. How do we know that you are that kind of a prophet? How do we know you're a prophet sent by the God of the Jews? We Arabs, we've never had prophets like that, so we don't know what the credentials of that kind of a prophet should be. But then they said, the Jews, however, will know. If you present your... Credentials to the Jews. And if the Jews say, yes, 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 he is a prophet sent by the same God that sent Moses to us, this same God has sent Muhammad to you Arabs, then we'll believe you. But we need an affirmation from the Jews first. Otherwise, we just will stay as idol worshipers. We're not going to change our ways unless the Jews give their affirmation your claims. So when Muhammad came to Medina, he came with a dire need for a public approbation of the Jews in Medina to his claim to be a prophet. And so the Jews said, All right, sir, you say you're a prophet, give us the evidence. Can you work a miracle? And Muhammad said, No, no, I can't work a miracle. That's not the kind of evidence that I offered. So the Jews said, well, what else can you offer? He said, I can tell stories from your Old Testament. Do you see how this was going to create a problem for him? He had no idea how misguided he was in his understanding of Old Testament scriptures. So he began to narrate the story of the Exodus, and the Jews were listening. And when they noticed that he omitted the Passover, and when he gave credit for Gideon's victory to King Saul and mixed the story of the book of Esther with the story of the Exodus. The Jews shook their heads and said, sorry sir, we cannot give our affirmation to you. It's very clear to us, you are not a prophet. And so they rejected his claim publicly in front of pagan Arabs, in front of the followers that he had brought with him when he fled from Mecca to Medina. And they probably said, you know, Forget about being a prophet, why don't you go into politics, do something else. (laughs) In fact, the Jews did encourage him to be a kind of an arbitrator of disputes, probably hoping that would distract him from his pursuit of the career of a prophet. Little did the Jews know, when they mocked Muhammad, discredited him, as they had every right to do, they were exercising the right of free speech, They were giving their honest opinion. Little did they know that that sealed within his heart a terrible hatred of them. And he would not accept that rejection. And if he could not have approbation from the Jews, then he decided he would use some other means to encourage large numbers, especially of pagan Arab men, to join his following. So he began to offer them plunder and slaves. He said, We're going to take the sword. We're going to go out and lay in wait along the caravan routes and we're going to maraud caravans. We're going to plunder caravans and we're going to divide up all the plunder. He's, he took 20% for God and himself and his followers could divide up the other 80%. And whenever they marauded a caravan, occasionally they found passengers traveling on the caravan, just as there would be passengers on a Wells Fargo stagecoach in the Old West. There were some passengers on the caravans, and some of the passengers were women and girls. And they suffered a terrible fate because Mohammed authorized all the, the women that were captured when they raided caravans to become slaves for his followers. He took some of the women as his own slaves and divided the others up among his followers. Well, there are four verses in the Quran in which Muhammad tells his male followers that God is willing for them to take the female slaves that they've captured to their bed. So there was the inducement of plunder and the inducement of extra sensuous pleasure with female slaves that were captured. All of this is confirmed from Muslim sources. And so he made a name for himself as a marauder. He was not willing to settle down, get a job, earn his keep. He led his followers as raiders. And of course, this caused the people in Mecca to send out uh, guards to reinforce the caravans so that he couldn't raid them. And, and one day a caravan was on its way heading northward, and the city of Mecca sent an army of 1,000 men just a little distance behind the caravan so that if he and his followers attacked that caravan, the 1,000 men could come to the rescue. Well, before he even got close to the caravan, he and his 300 followers bumped into the 1,000 men from Mecca, and a battle was joined. And Muhammad and his followers won the battle. And he claimed that the victory of 300 over 1,000 confirmed that God was on his side. But scholars that I've referenced give a very different reason for Muhammad's victory over the army from the city of Medina because some of the 300 followers fighting with Muhammad were related to some of the men among the the thousand. And these people from Mecca, recognizing uncles, recognizing cousins, nephews among Muhammad's 300 warriors, did not want to kill them. They couldn't bring themselves to pierce the body of a, of a relative with the sword. So they were not really fighting zealously. But Muhammad had been strongly emphasizing to his followers, when you become a Muslim, your commitment to Islam overrides every other commitment. And it has to be stronger than your love of your father, your mother. Your commitment to Islam takes priority. And so his followers did not Hold the sword back, they killed relatives, they slaughtered people, even though they were related to them, and that's why they won the battle at the Well of Badur. Once he had gained that victory, he had even more, a a higher reputation among pagan Arab men, so even more of them began to join him. When finally he had a sufficient percentage of citizens of the Arab population of Mecca as his followers, he decided it was time for him to take revenge upon the three Jewish clans resident in Medina who had rejected him, who had embarrassed him, who had ridiculed him in front of his followers. And in the book, Secrets of the Quran, I trace the acceleration of violence. He kept escalating the violence to higher and higher levels until finally, after he had expelled two Jewish clans from the city claiming all their property, claiming all their land, all their date palm orchards. There was only one Jewish clan left. He attacked that clan. And when they surrendered, this time he was not going to settle for banishment. He wanted blood. And so he ordered all the Jewish men beheaded and all their women and children enslaved. And it happened. By that time, he had some, such a high percentage of Arabs in his following that those who didn't want to see the Jews killed were not strong enough to stop him. And this is from Muslim sources. Some Muslim sources say 500 Jewish men beheaded one day. Other sources say it was 900. Somewhere between the number of 500 and 900 would be the accurate number, and as I was reading. These accounts in Muslim sources, this is background to the verses in the Quran, the war verses, I thought to myself, why weren't they ashamed to admit that these things happened? You would think they would have tried to cover this up. But it was clear. They were not ashamed at all. They were bragging. This was the order of the day. This was the way things were done. And that's the kind of spirit that Muhammad encouraged. So when we hear of radical Muslims like Osama bin Laden encouraging violence such as struck us on 9-11 and others becoming suicide bombers in this or that conflict, we need to recognize they know that they have an example in Muhammad himself. So the war verses and Muslim apologists are constantly saying on the media, Yes, there are war verses, but there's only five or six, and they're only about self defense. Justifiable self defense is the phrase they keep using. Well, in my research, I checked to see how many of the 109 war verses, because there's not five or six, there's 109, which means one out of 55 verses all through the Quran was dictated to encourage Muslims to be violent to, to non Muslims. And so. I found that only five or six can be interpreted as related to self-defense. All the rest are promoting aggression. And you can look them up. Everything that I'm telling you this evening, you can check in the Quran on your computer screen. All you have to do is go to a search engine like Google.com. When the home page of the search engine comes up, type in Quran K-O-R-A-N, press enter, and in about three seconds, you'll have several websites that will give you the entire text of the Quran right on your screen. You can even do word searches. Type in one word and press a button, and every verse in the Quran that contains that one word in that particular translation will be listed for you and shown in bold type. So you can check it yourself. There are 109 war verses Go especially to chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 9, but there's many more in all the other, almost all the other chapters. And one of them says, chop off their heads. And this is exactly what happened to at least 500 Jewish men in Medina. Another verse advocates torture. It says, chop off their fingertips. Well, the intent of that is obviously not to kill, but to torture someone. Other verses say, ambush them, lie in wait for them. And whereas Jesus said, do good to those who hate hate you and show kindness to those who use you despitefully. Muhammad said, do not make friends of infidels. Who's an infidel? Anyone without the the Muslim faith is an infidel. We, We are infidels because we're not Muslims. And so gradually, Islam developed coming right out of the pages of the Quran by the definition of all of mankind divided into two houses. One is called Dar-ul-Islam, the House of Islam. And the rest of mankind are in the dar al harb the House of War. So that is the basis of violence. Now, many people will say, but wait, Christians have been violent also. Christians perpetrated the Inquisition, especially in Spain. Even Protestant Christians in Germany in the 1500s killed some Jews, confiscated their property. And then, of course, there were the Crusades. And Muslims constantly refer to the Inquisition and the Crusades to justify all the violence that it is in the Quran, in the Muslim traditions, and in Muslim history. How do we respond to that? The most important response is to say, there is not one war verse in the New Testament. When Jesus, uh, when Peter struck off a, a servant's ear, Jesus healed his ear and warned Peter, "Put up your sword. Those who live by the sword will perish by the sword." When he said in another place, let him who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, that was not thinking of the sword as a weapon of war because the sword was an instrument, a tool used for many things. If you were traveling in the wilderness, you would take a sword to chop firewood at night. You're not going to take a sword in one hand and an axe in the other. That's a lot of extra weight. A sword could be used to chop firewood or to protect yourself from a wild animal, or just the presence of a sword might be a deterrent to robbers and thieves trying to make trouble for you. So it was something people just commonly traveled with as a utensil. And it's very clear Jesus did not ever intend the use of the sword for violence against another human being. So there are no more verses in the New Testament. Instead, Christians are advised to show love, to do good to those who oppose them and not to speak evil of any man. Thus, whenever Christians have gone to war and used the sword in the name of Jesus Christ, they have been doing violence to the New Testament. But when Muslims use the sword in the name of Allah, in the name of Muhammad, they are not doing violence to the Quran. They are honoring the war verses that are in the Quran. So there's a big difference between people departing from their scriptures, raping their scriptures, so to speak, violating their scriptures and doing wrong things, and other people who are doing violence knowing they are honoring what is in the scriptures that are the foundation of their faith. And even in the Old Testament, Joshua led the armies of Israel in the Old Testament, the prophet Samuel hewed a gag in pieces, and Elijah had all the prophets of Baal killed on Mount Carmel. And this continued up to the time of King David. There are even war verses in the Psalms, but ever so many theologians, Christian theologians have overlooked the fact that in the transition from King David to the reign of his son Solomon. God instituted a new policy. David used violence, and David pleaded with God, asking for favor to be the one privileged to build the first temple in Jerusalem. I'm referring to 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 20, 22, verses 7 to 9. When David said, "Let me be the one to build the first temple," God said, "No." You will not build my house because you have much blood on your hands. You have fought many wars in my sight. And then God said, your son Solomon will be a man of peace. He will build my house. That was a pivotal point. Until that moment, human society in the late Bronze Age had not developed to the point that God could ordain a separation of a political leadership that could wage war from a spiritual leadership that would not be allowed to engage in violence. But in the transition from the reign of King David to King Solomon, God saw that the stage was ready for him to order that change. So King Solomon wrote books of the Old Testament. you know the names of them? Proverbs Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. There's not one more verse in any of those books. What comes next? All the other prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all the way through to Malachi. That is approximately half of the Old Testament, and the violence that happened earlier, the war that believers in God were allowed to engage in in the earlier books of the New Testament came to a stop. And I at first didn't know this. I'd overlooked it. And I thought it's only in the New Testament that the believers are forbidden to use the sword. Then I began to realize, no. Even in the transition from David to King Solomon, a new policy was emerged. Now granted, God might still reach down from heaven and punish people as he would see fit, but that's God doing it on his own and kings perceived increasingly as secular leaders, not religious leaders, they would still wage war. But the prophets, the men who wrote scripture, did not wage war at all. They were forbidden to use the sword. There are no instances of Isaiah doing what Elijah did earlier, what the prophet Samuel had done, what Joshua had done. Well, from the time of King Solomon until the time of Muhammad, was 1,500, almost 1,600 years in which this new policy had stood firm. Muhammad in the 600s, in effect, was saying, God has changed his mind. He wants his people to go back to the use of the sword and has authorized me to inaugurate this new change. And that's, in effect, what he was asking people to believe. Well, that's a very unlikely proposition. So. I could go on and on, but I want to conclude by mentioning that there are five verses in the Quran in which Muhammad challenges his followers to go for world domination. Not that he knew how big the world was, but he was very clear in his articulation of a goal that all of the world must be dominated by Islam. He said, fight in the cause of God until Islam is the only religion. So he ended up by calling for his followers to see to it that Islam eventually replaced Judaism and eventually replaced Christianity. He began to articulate Islam as a fraternal religion, fraternal to Judaism, in the sense that Ishmael was a a half-brother of Isaac. But once the Jews rejected him, and once he had turned against them with so much violence, he gave up, pointing to the, fraternal, the possible fraternal nature of Judaism and Islam and went for erasing Judaism from the face of the earth. So there is that strong anti-Semitic policy instituted right in the Quran itself. And I could talk for an hour just about what the Quran says about women and what the Hadith the traditions that are secondary to the Quran in importance say about women, Muhammad was fond of saying that God gave him a vision of hell and he looked out over the lake of fire and saw millions of people writhing in the flame and screaming in in anguish. And as he looked out over the scene, he noticed there were more women down there than men. And so, of course, he asked God, why are there more women in hell than men? And God's answer, as reported by him, not in the Quran, but in the Hadith, was, it's because women do not appreciate all the wonderful things their husbands do for them. (laughs) Well, it brings a chuckle, but is it funny, really? That was a club that he placed in the hands of Muslim men to browbeat their wives into total submission. So, If we know these things as believers, then we will call upon God to guide us in conversing with a Muslim. I suggest the best thing is to get to the point where you ask him a question about the Qur'an. Say, you know, I've been studying your holy book, and I came across this verse. And I really, I need an explanation of this because as it is, there's no way I could accept this. And chances are the Muslim is not aware of the verse at all. But as you show it to him on your computer screen or out of a copy of the Quran, or out of a quote in a book like Secrets of the Quran, he will probably find he doesn't know what to say. He'll say, I'll have to ask the mullah at the mosque. How do we respond to that kind of a question? And if he goes to the Muslim leader in the mosque and finds that the Muslim leader doesn't give a satisfactory explanation, then you have planted a merciful seed of doubt in his or her mind. And once you've done that, then you can bring another question and another question, but you need to know which are the real questions to ask. So that is why, especially after 9-11, I said, I don't care how boring the Quran is, I'm going to study it, I'm going to put down on paper, all the insights that I believe God has given me about it. And I want to keep it brief. I don't want to write a 600-page book. And I decided I would write a book explaining these important things so that any reader, after just three hours investment of time, would know much more about the Quran than 90% of all Muslims know. And I managed to keep all that information condensed into just 260 pages. Well, it might take you more than three hours to read 260 pages, but even if you don't finish the book, three hours, and you will know, and you will just say, oh, there's a relative of mine who's thinking of converting to Islam. I've got to send this book. I've got to get this information to him or her first so that he or she will know what they're getting into. There's so many ways we can use this. a friend of mine Talking with a Jewish client in Los Angeles, heard the Jewish man brag about the fact that he'd read the Quran. And he said, Oh, the Quran confirms the Old Testament. And so my friend Bill said to him, Yes, he tells the story of the Exodus 27 times in the first 89 chapters. How did Bill know that? He just finished reading Secrets of the Quran. And the man said, Yeah, well, yes, I didn't know it was that many times, but he does tell the story of the Exodus a lot. And then my friend Bill said to his Jewish client, did you notice anything missing? No. What should I have noticed was missing? The Passover. And Bill said, I watched the expression on his face change. He was so embarrassed that he as a Jew had failed to notice that the Passover was not in the Exodus story. And the Jewish man wanted to talk more and more. And the conversation gradually shifted from the Koran to Jesus. And then I just got this letter from a friend of mine, Jeff Gullison, lives in Phoenix. He was using Secrets of the Quran in a Bible study, and there was a Muslim from Kosovo in Albania attending the class. And Jeff Gullison wrote to me, one of the Muslims from Kosovo who attends our adult community class in Bethany bought the book, Secrets of the Quran and read right through it. As a result, he purchased a copy of the Bible in Albanian and wants to reconsider his religious beliefs. That was so encouraging. Well, that is what I pray will happen more and more. Men and women, Islam is on the march. It is on the move. The most radical Muslims are the Wahhabi sect in Saudi Arabia, and they have intimidated the princes to the point that the princes will give them billions of dollars to, ex- to spread Islam all over the world. And they are spending billions of dollars building magnificent mosques in every city of South America, Latin America. Wherever a mosque goes up, a Muslim school will soon be opened with a big sign on the outside wall, come see what Islam can do for you and your family. So Muslim schools are offering education In competition with Catholic parochial schools all through Latin America, there is not one city of more than half a million people in South America that doesn't have a mosque and perhaps also a Muslim school already. And they are offering colleges and universities all through the Western world a special grant of oil money if they will build a Department of Islamic Studies on campus land. Condition is If the university accepts the offer, they have to be willing to let the Muslim organization that provides the funds for the construction to provide the professors who will teach. Because, of course, if we're going to pay for the Department of Islamic Studies, we want to be sure Islam is equitably represented in that department. And they do indeed provide qualified PhDs who are trained to be debaters. On Islam, and they are trained to constantly extol Islam, build Islam up, and while doing so, make insinuating statements against Christianity. And this is beginning to come through in more and more uh, courses offered on comparative religion on our campuses. Ever so many professors don't do their own research to learn about Quran; they just take books written by Muslim apologists and read that, just parrot that, and they do not know, even have any idea what they are catering to. So Islam is already increasing its influence very drastically in Western Europe. Muslims in Great Britain now number about three million, and they've already established their own Islamic parliament, which is passing laws that Muslims in Great Britain are expected to obey. And, of course, British should say, please don't call it a parliament. We've got our parliament. Call it something else. But Muslims say, no, it is our parliament. And some of the leaders of the Islamic parliament have made it very clear in their literature it is their firm intention that the Muslim parliament in Great Britain will soon replace the British parliament. And radical Muslims have targeted the United States of America to have a Muslim candidate run for president in 2020. Now, they may not achieve that goal, but if they do have a candidate who can be nominated, you can be sure there will be an exorbitant amount of oil money ready to help him with his campaign. They are determined, and their goals and methods are very different from ours. The very first thing we must do is to shed our naivete. Western societies are sinking in a quicksand of naivete. People think they're just being tolerant to a mere religion. They don't realize that Islam is a religion, but more than that, it is a very potent political force. Well, I could say much more, but let me conclude. Your culture calls for this message to end about three minutes ago. So, (laughs) if you have learned anything from this talk tonight, you're probably thinking well i'm not I, I don't care i'm not interested men and women we've got to be interested i know you'd rather read something else but we've got to be informed we have got to somehow get into our heads an awareness that we are at war and it isn't just what's happening in afghanistan or iraq there's a war going on in dozens of nations and it isn't just being fought with guns and shock and awe bombs. It is being fought with ideas. The ideas are the most important. The suicide bombers are not the main threat. The really intelligent and radical Muslims, they are the biggest concern, and we need to know what their motivations are. So if you've learned anything from me in this evening message, I can assure you there's the equivalent of five or six talks like this in the pages of Secrets of the Quran, And with Pastor Skip's kind invitation, we have made copies available for you, along with the other books that I wrote earlier in my writing career. So let's study to show ourselves approved of God when it comes to reaching out to Muslims. Because they're right in our nation. They are needy people. Christ died for them. And they can be approached with love. But we have to gain some skill in knowing their background in order to effectively witness to them. Please rise as we close in prayer. O oh Lord God, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for the scriptures uncorrupted by any virus. Thank you, Lord, for the the pure word of God that can be engrafted into our very souls. Thank you, O Lord, for the strength, for the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. And help us to find ways to reach out to Muslim students, Muslim neighbors. Lord, let, let us begin from this very evening to make them a very major prayer concern Place a yearning in our hearts, O God, for them that they may see beyond Muhammad to the Christ of God, Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again from the dead and will come again to be the Lord.